All right, hello, Instagram. And hello, YouTube. Wait, welcome, there we go. Welcome to day four of OT with DA. Great to see everyone signing on so quickly. This is day four of our 75-day challenge through not all of the Old Testament, but a large part of the Old Testament. We're reading through this amazing book, nearly a thousand pages. I mean, look at that thing. That's a big book. Reading through this in 75 days, a chapter a day, and uh, we're off to a great start. My name is Pastor David Asherick. That's where the DA part comes from, OT, the Old Testament, with David Asherick. All right, great to see people signing in. Hello, Kendra. Great to see you. Hi, Trisha. Hi, Swashinger. Did I say that right? To Blossom Forever. Hello, CJ Girl. Signs from everywhere. There we go. Is that Nico Duca? Is that Nico? Can you guys hear me okay? Somebody's asking if there's any volume. Hopefully you can hear me all right. By the way, just a reminder, if anything ever goes wrong on the Instagram Live, like if it drops out, or if last year when we were doing this, at one point Instagram's servers just stopped. So if that ever happens, uh, by the grace of God, the uh, hard copy that we're getting here, that we're capturing for YouTube, that will always hopefully, by the grace of God, be available. So again, if something goes wrong on Instagram, check out YouTube. What I try to do uh, is immediately after the live, I do all of my little downloading and, and cutting and clipping and volume adjusting and then uploading. And that takes about two to three hours. It only takes me about an hour to an hour and a half, but then YouTube has to upload it and it takes a little while. So Anyway, that's, that's what we're doing. If the Instagram Live doesn't work, or if it just doesn't suit your schedule, don't feel like you have to make the Instagram Live every time. And as I said at the outset, if you fall behind a day or two, no problem. You can always catch up on the weekends. And it's actually more important, if you're going to have to choose uh, between the two, it's far more important that you read the chapter for yourself, that you prayerfully read the chapter yourself than that you hear the live or the YouTube video that I'm doing about it. I, I think it would be great if you could get both in, but if you can only get one and you're, you're really busy or you've slipped a little bit behind, no problem. Just read the chapter and then later perhaps you can go back and make up the video. So welcome everybody. We have a lot to go over today and uh, in lieu of yesterday where I had a lot of announcements. I'm going to have very few announcements here because I actually have something that's so cool, so awesome, and to me today was so encouraging that I want to share with you, and I'm going to do that in just a couple moments here. First of all, just a quick reminder, if you are using any of the social media platforms, that's Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, uh, by all means, I'm asking you to please use the OT with DA hashtag. That allows me as I said yesterday, to, to keep up with what you're experiencing and your notes and your insights and your photos. Uh, the other day, Types and Symbols did a little thing where they said, where do you like to do OT with DA? Where do you like to do your devotions? It was really cool. People, some, uh, some people said, oh, I like to be by the ocean. Other people said in my office. Some people said in front of the fire. Um, my wife tends to have her devotions right in bed. In fact, my wife is so 
she's amazing on so many levels, but one of the things I really appreciate about Violetta is she literally doesn't get out of bed until she has had her devotions. Like, she just doesn't. You know, she wakes up, she reaches over, she grabs her Bible, she prays, she spends her time with Jesus, and then she feels free to get out of bed. So anyway, if you use the hashtag OT with DA, it allows us to sort of keep up with one another. And uh, I really like that. That's a, a big part for me of the attraction of doing OT with DA is that I feel like there's an emerging community. And I'm going to read you something to that effect in just a moment. Okay, number two, really great news. I spent some time today, quite a little bit of time, nailing down and locking in a number of our OT with DA guests. And presently, I have locked in Ty Gibson, Nathan Renner, Dr. Jennifer Jill Schwerzer, D. Casper, and Hanny, Hannah and Johnny Suarez. I'm still working on Elise, and I actually made a terrible mistake. I double booked uh, two of my guests, and a giant apology to Sylvia. Big mistake, my fault. I, I hope that we can get you on one of those other two uh, weekends that I sent you. So anyway, we are we are off to the races, and as soon as this weekend, we're going to have Jennifer Schwarzer with us, and I, I cannot wait. Um, okay. Oh, I also, I'll, I'll get to that in just a second about those books, but let me read you this. I got this today when I sat down after my morning workout, sat down to, to eat breakfast, and I received an email from a person named Kevin. I, I won't say his last name, but I am sharing this with his permission, and it, it was a name that I didn't recognize. And so I was like, oh, I wonder what that's about. And, and the title in the, in the email was just, thank you, all caps, DA with DA. And with his permission, I'm going to read you uh, what I read this morning. And I, I said to Kevin, I said, when I responded, I said, this not only made my day, this is like made my whole week, maybe my whole month or year. Okay, let me read this to you. Uh, it says, David. Diana, the love of my life, is a Christian and opened my eyes to your teachings last year. I had given my life to Jesus years ago, but was not truly walking the walk. I didn't know about Seventh-day Adventists or what keeping the Sabbath really meant or about the work of Ellen White, the writing of Ellen White. Diana introduced me to Steps to Christ. Great choice, Diana. That's a great place to start. I've read that book many, many times. Diana introduced me to Steps of Christ and your sermons, and I had never heard any pastor speak to me so clearly. I'm honored to hear that. I'm blessed and, and all glory to God. On Sunday, October 17, 2020, I started the DA with DA Challenge. On Monday, January 17, 2022, in other words, two days ago, I completed chapter 87 to my father and your father 92 days after I started. I'm sending you this email to thank you for the amazing journey that we took together. Man, I can't tell you how much I am thrilled to hear that because even though DA with DA was last year, when you're following along on the YouTube videos, you are a part of that journey. And so to hear you say that, Kevin, just thrills my soul. He continues, to say that I was misinformed is a gross understatement. You, Ellen White, Diana, and the Holy Spirit revealed the true meaning of God's word and especially Jesus' love and ultimate sacrifice for me. God bless you for this amazing ministry. 
And and I first of all, that's the 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 sort of opening paragraph, and I was just thrilled to read that. And then I thought you'd enjoy this. He actually went into a little detail, and thank you for doing that, Kevin, as to how he did DA with DA. And and this is so cool because there is no one size fits all. You do what works for you. And uh, let me let me tell you what Kevin said worked for him. He says, I did my DA with DA devotional a little differently than you. I had never read The Conflict of the Ages, and I purchased a digital copy on Kindle. I was also given a hard copy of the series from Diana as a Christmas present. Diana, I like you more and more. The more I'm learning about you, Diana, I, I like you. I, I can see why Kevin went for you. He says, however, I used Microsoft Word to do my day-to-day -day study. Copies of the PDF files are attached. And he literally sent me all of his PDF files, all the notes. Incredible. And I listened to the audio version during my prayer and praise walk every morning. The result was amazing. I have never felt so intimately connected to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. I'm including some images of my workspace and my wall of DA gems. Oh, I like that. DA gems that I've collected over the last three months. I'm putting together, and he sent me a picture here, I wish you could see it, of, of his wall. And his wall is just covered in sticky notes. I mean, it's just covered in sticky notes. It's great. He says, I'm putting together a DA with DA gems poster, and I will share it with you when it's completed. Uh, Kevin, by all means, we want the DA with DA gems poster, and with your permission, I'll share it with the whole community, right? I can't, I can't wait to see what that looks like. What does a DA with DA gems poster look like? This will be the first ever in the history of the universe. Yeah, that's going to be great. Uh, he says, I've collected these gems over the last three months. I'm putting together a poster. I'll share it with you when it's completed. I'm removing my sticky note gems this week to make room for OT with DA gems. I love it. I started the OT series yesterday, and I can see from the first session, Why Was Sin Permitted, that I will need a lot of room for gems with OT with DA. And uh, he goes on. It's absolutely beautiful. And man, thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Diana, that made my day, made my week, made my month, and this whole thing is making my year. And so, welcome to OT with DA. I hope that there are many more Kevins out there and Dianas out there who are, in their own way, in a, in a tailor-made fashion, taking these humble offerings that, that I'm making here and that we're making as a community and, and using them to the glory of God. So we're going to start with prayer and we're going to be right into this because today's chapter, chapter three, the temptation and the fall is, there's a lot on offer here. And my notes are once again filled to the brim. Look at that. You can see very full, a lot to cover. And so let's pray and then we're into this. Father in heaven, my heart is thrilled. That's not even... That's not even a strong enough word. I am overcome with gratitude and thankfulness and praise to you for not just the work that you've done in Kevin's life, but certainly that. But Father, the work that you are doing in the lives of all the Kevins around the world, and not just through DA with DA or OT with DA. Father, you are working with everyone everywhere. And Father, the prayer of my heart is that people all around the world would be increasingly opening their hearts to you. Father, as, as we're going to see in today's chapter, there is a, a nature, a bent that we have away from you naturally since the fall. 
But Father, through the Spirit and through nature and through your word, we can open and we can be transformed and changed and we can begin to see things with new eyes. As Kevin says in his email, to say that I was misinformed would be an understatement. Father, the whole world is misinformed. What did Isaiah say? Darkness covers the earth and gross darkness the people. But then you promise that you will arise and that your glory will be seen. And so, Father, show us your glory tonight as we get into chapter 3 of Patriarchs and Prophets. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so chapter 3, The Temptation and the Fall, and I had mentioned on, I think, the first session and the second session that, that there's two books up here that I want to just briefly say something about. Okay, the first book is actually a book that was written by me. This book is called God in Pain, and I would tell you where you can order it, but it is currently out of stock, out of print. And uh, the reason I'm pointing this out, and we are going to reprint it, I'm working on it, I'm, I'm, I'm considering writing two additional chapters, and that's the holdup. Um, but basically, this is a book that explores, from my perspective, the question of theodicy, the goodness of God, the vindication of the character of God and of his government in the face of ubiquitous and terrible evil. And uh, so that's a book that I highly recommend, if you haven't already read it, once it's back in stock, but a book that I can certainly recommend and is currently in stock, written by a very good friend of mine, is this book, Theodicy of Love. You need to get your hands on that book. I've recommended it over and over again. It's written by my friend, Dr. John, John Peckham. Uh, I've reached out to John to see if he could maybe do a supplemental session for us here in OT with DA, but this book titled Theodicy of Love, Cosmic Conflict and the Problem of Evil. If you want to understand chapter one, why was sin permitted? And chapter three, the temptation and the fall, and begin to understand the, the framework, what Dr. Peckham calls the covenantal rules of engagement that we see on display in our chapter here, you, you should get your hands on this book. Easy to read, published by Baker Academic. You need that book. You really do. My son, my oldest son, Landon, uh, just finished reading that book, and it was really great because part of the time he was reading the book, we were traveling together, and uh, I would just hear him say, oh, wow, that's amazing. Dad, and he'd say, Dad, have a look at this. And I, I can't tell you how thrilling it was to have my 20-year-old son reading a book that I absolutely loved. In fact, several times I actually took pictures of him reading the book, and then I texted those pictures to, to the author, uh, Dr. John Peckham, I said, hey, look at this. Somebody is loving your book. And so when we're talking about the issues of chapter one, why was sin permitted, and today, the temptation and the fall, and really, by extension, much of what we're going to be talking about in the whole of the Old Testament is not just the original fall of mankind, but the ongoing precipitous fall of humanity. And uh, that book, The Odyssey of Love, in my opinion, uh, is the one-stop shop if you read only one book ever in your life, apart from uh, the, the Bible itself. If you read a single book on theodicy, I think that should be the one. It's just that good. Okay, so we are in chapter 3, The Temptation and the Fall, and there's a lot I want to say here, and we're going to just get stuck into this, and we'll just sort of see how it goes. Um. And we'll do as we normally do. I had several people reach out to me and say, we like the rubric and the word at the end. 
And I couldn't believe that I actually forgot the word yesterday. Got all the way down to the end and forgot my word, had to interrupt my own prayer. That was a little embarrassing. But uh, hey, this is live. This is happening as it's happening. And so uh, this is what it is. And I got a little surprise for you uh, on my word today. So hopefully I won't forget it again. Okay, I want to start by just reading the first paragraph here. So I'm on page 56. We're in chapter 56. We're in chapter 3. And the, the chapter is titled The Temptation and Fall. And I want to highlight the first three words. I mean, just, just note those first three words. Talk about an auspicious beginning. Talk about an ominous beginning, right? No longer free. I don't know if you caught that. I underlined that. I highlighted that. I was like, of course, of course. When we start talking about a departure from God's will, from God's goodness, from God's government, his desire for our happiness, we find ourselves not in full liberty, not in some higher elevated state that we're going to talk a little bit about here today. We find ourselves no longer free. We become slaves to sin. We become, we become slaves to our own selfishness. We become slaves to the ruinous nature of sin itself. And so I thought it was just fascinating that the opening paragraph begins, no longer free to stir up rebellion in heaven. Satan, one more word. I'm sorry, just one more word. The problem with sin and with rebellion and with selfishness is that they create the illusion of freedom. And we're going to see that. They create the illusion of liberty, but you're not actually free. You're a slave to sin. You're a slave to rebellion. You're a slave to selfishness. And so again, I just can't get away from the significance of this just opening phrase. No longer free to stir up rebellion in heaven, Satan's enmity against God found a new field in plotting the ruin of the human race. In the happiness and peace of the holy pair in Eden, he, held a vision, he beheld a vision of the bliss that to him was forever lost. Moved by envy, he determined to incite them to disobedience and bring upon them the guilt and penalty of sin. He would change their love to distrust and their songs of praise to reproaches against their maker. Thus, he would not only plunge these innocent beings into the same misery which he himself was enduring, but would cast dishonor upon God and cause grief in heaven. Okay, there is so much going on here. So much going on. And, and let me just start. I'm just, there's going to be like a fire hydrant coming at you very quickly out of this first paragraph. The first thing I want you to note is the use of several dis words. And we noted that in our first paragraph, our first uh, session together. Right? Remember that whole section there where there was like nine or ten, uh, nearly a dozen dis words. And we got three dis words right here in this paragraph. Disobedience, distrust, dishonor. And I want to say something about that. One of the things that, that people like Dr. Peckham and other theologians have noted about the nature of sin, and don't miss this point, the, the importance of what I'm about ready to say cannot be overstated. One of the things that they have noted is that sin possesses inherently a kind of parasitic quality, okay? That, that sin is not a thing in and of itself, it's the perversion or the corruption or the absence of a thing. And that's actually what the word dis means, right? If you have honor, dishonor is the opposite of that. But dishonor is not a thing as such. It's the absence of or the corruption of or the perversion of honor, right? And your, your other dis words here, trust. 
Distrust is not a thing so much as it is the perversion or the absence of a thing. And sin is just like that. And so it's a very purposeful and strategic use that we've seen in these opening three chapters of Patriarchs and Prophets of all of these diswords. It's showing the intrinsic and inherent ruinous nature and parasitic nature of sin itself. And we're going to come back to that several times in this session. Okay, now I want to show you something super cool. Just back one page on the very last page of last chapter, so I'm on page 54, right in the middle of page 54, the paragraph that begins the Holy Paris, the second to the last paragraph, Ellen White refers to God, and this is so cool. I, I was a little disappointed in myself that I forgot to mention it yesterday, but you got to highlight this. You have to underline this. Right in the middle of the page, it says, um, it refers to, to God as, listen to this, the infinite framer and upholder of all. What? That's a mouthful, and it's incredible. Think about that. She, she's, she's using, she's trying to grab language, and Ellen White is an incredible writer, a forceful communicator, an excellent, a superb writer. In fact, I'm going to share with you a paragraph today that I'm just like, all I wrote in the margin was, that's great writing. That, that's just great writing. And so Ellen White here, a very capable communicator and writer, is, is reaching and trying to help us to understand the inherently wonderful and yet mysterious nature of God, and she arrives at this name, the infinite framer and upholder of all. That is so cool. The infinite framer and upholder of all. Now contrast that with how she refers to Satan, how she refers to Satan in this chapter. She refers to him as the destroyer. That's on page 58. Make a note of that. She calls him the destroyer. So what we're going to see here is a contest between the infinite framer and upholder of all and the destroyer, and you see it right there in that paragraph. Look at the language. When Satan realizes that, that the playground or the venue, what, what word does she use here? Uh, the, a new field to, to try and you know, further his rebellion and further his insinuations about the goodness, governance, and character of God, he comes to earth. Now, this is described in many places in Scripture, uh, obviously Genesis chapter 3, which we'll be in today, also Revelation chapter 12, uh, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. But when she describes it, she uses all these words like ruin and misery and distrust. In other words, he has no creative power. Satan is not creating anything. He's not crafting anything. He's not fashioning or fabricating anything. He's just destroying stuff. He's just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what will stick. As I've already said, sin is a form of insanity. And so what we have here is this contest between the infinite framer and upholder of all and the destroyer whose tools are dis-tools disobedience, dishonor, distrust, discord, right? Disaffection, dissatisfaction, disharmony. And so this is fully on display here. And to me, the contrast is purposeful. To leave one chapter talking about the infinite upholder and framer of all, or I guess she says it the reverse, the infinite framer and upholder of all, and then immediately get into destruction and ruin and misery. This is purposeful. And one of the, the main things that's happening in this chapter is to show the inherent intrinsic 
ruinous nature of sin. Okay, and I'll show you that several places in the passage, uh, in the in the chapter rather. Okay, now I'm going to jump over to page 57. That's the very next page, and you have this amazing section that starts. Uh, the paragraph begins: "The law of God is as sacred." And I underlined this and highlighted it because to me this is really one of the major pivots, one of the major hinges upon which the whole chapter turns. Okay, I'm going to read that. Not the whole paragraph, but just the first bit. The law of God is as sacred as himself. Whoa. It is a revelation of his will, and then this incredible line, a transcript of his character, the expression of divine love and wisdom. Awesome. Now, she goes on to say a little bit later in that chapter, in this whole, or that paragraph, excuse me, <laughs> in that paragraph, she says things like everything I'm, I'm reading now, everything is under fixed laws, which cannot be disregarded. But while everything in nature is governed by natural laws, man alone of all the inhabitants of earth is amenable to moral law. To man, the crowning work of creation, God has given power to understand his requirements and to comprehend the justice and beneficence of his law. So, so this is a very important point. What she's, what she's doing here is letting us know that, that God's law is not capricious. It's not willy-nilly. It's not serendipitous. It's not arbitrary. In fact, just a note on that. Make a note of this. I'm going to go back just a couple pages here. Page 52, okay, this was in our last chapter in the creation, and on page 52, right in the middle of the page, for me, it's page 49 of the original pagination, the very last sentence of the paragraph that begins, God placed man under law as an indispensable condition of his very existence, go look at the last sentence there, listen to this, it would have been unworthy of man as an intelligent being, watch this now, and would have sustained Satan's charge of God's arbitrary rule. Okay, the importance of this cannot be overstated. Okay, what we have here is a contest, not only a contest between the infinite framer and upholder of all and the destroyer, we have a contest between the idea that law is, is reasonable and law is intrinsic to the nature of reality and of God itself. I and mean, we just read, everything in nature is under fixed laws versus, no, 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 the law is capricious. There's no rhyme. There's no reason. It's arbitrary. Now, if you don't know what the word arbitrary is, or if you need a refresher on it, the word arbitrary means without reason, right? It's, it's not sequential. It's not rational. It's just random. And Satan's accusation Part of Satan's accusation against God, against his government, and against his law is it's arbitrary. There's nothing that grounds it. There's nothing that moors it. There's nothing that roots it. And, and if that's true, we can begin to understand why it is that Satan's temptations and his deceptions would gain traction. In other words, if God is just saying, don't do that, and we say, well, why not? And then he, like so many tired parents have said, if God just says, well, because I said so. And, and I want to say, I, I hear Christians say this. Good Christian people, sincere Christian people, they'll say, well, God says so, and therefore it is that way. And I'm not denying that God possesses the authority, the power, the majesty, and you know that he's not uniquely positioned to just say things, right? For example, like, let there be light, and there's light. But 
What's actually revealed in the text of Scripture is that God's, God's law, God's rule, God's requirements are not just capricious. They're not God just saying, well, I say so. And uh, don't ask any more questions because I don't like questions. I don't like transparency. I don't like openness. Just leave me alone and do what I say. That is a, caric a character, a caricature to be sure, but that's kind of what Satan is suggesting here. There's no rhyme. There's no reason. There's no rationality. There's no grounding. And yet, this paragraph that we just read is incredible. Let me just read you that opening sentence again, or that opening, I guess it's two sentences. The law of God is as sacred as God himself. What? That tells us that God's rules, God's requirements, God's law is actually grounded in his very nature. And, and let me just remind you again that God's very nature is covenantal. It's social. God is love. And so the law is the natural outflowing, not of some just arbitrary decree of a, of a you know, curmudgeon or a tyrant or an autocrat. No, the law is the outworking of God's very nature. And that's what she means when she says that it is a transcript of his character, the expression of divine love and wisdom. Now, this is all a little theological and a little philosophical, but it becomes really important when we read today's section on the temptation and the fall. And I'm just going to actually read that here. I'm going to grab my New King James Version of the Bible. I'm going to read like the first several verses of Genesis chapter 3. And as we read this, I want you to, there's many things to hear here. I mean, the layers of profundity and of beauty and of sublimity are in, amazing. I mean, there's just on, whether it's literary or philosophical or theological or psychological, there's so much going on here. But I want you just to tune your ear just to this idea of the suggestion, the insinuation that the requirements of God and the rule of God, in this case, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is just capricious. It's meaningless. It's arbitrary. In fact, it, it might even be worse than arbitrary. It might even be selfish. Okay? You're right. I'm just going to read it. So tune your ear to that. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in, verse, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, this chapter, chapter 3, is really one of two parts. Because the, the next chapter is, I'm almost sure, I've read it before, so I, I should tell you, it is going to complete what's started in this chapter. Okay, so you really kind of have to read them together, and we're going to do that. So tomorrow when we're in chapter 4, 
which I think is titled The Plan of Redemption. Is that right? The Plan of Redemption. We'll see that many of the threads that are left sort of hanging in this chapter are tied together nicely in that chapter. Okay, but don't miss the point. The suggestion here is that, that God has done something that is unclear, I mean, insufficiently clear. Did God really, I mean, did God say that? I, I thought I overheard something. And, and the woman senses that, that the insinuation or the suggestion of the serpent is that, yeah, it was a little unclear and maybe even a little unfair, and so she reflexively comes to God's defense. And let me just say this, Christians. God's word and God's will does not need defending, it needs obeying. Okay, God can take care of his own reputation. God can take care of his own law. He, God does not need you to defend him. God is more than capable of defending himself, right? As C.S. Lewis once said, he is, he's writing to one of his, I think, skeptical friends and says, you know, you ask me, how do I defend the Bible? And he said, well, easily. I defend the Bible in the same way that you would defend a lion, by letting it out of its cage. Okay, the Bible and God and the law and his will, they can take care of themselves. They don't need your defense, but they do require your obedience, right? And so, so Eve senses here that, oh, no, no, that, that seems a little unfair. That seems a little unjust. And so she tries to, to overcompensate. And the moment she does that, she finds herself not on God's ground, but on the vantage ground of the enemy of God. And, and the, the sort of backdrop to all of this is that God is unreasonable, God is unfair, God is arbitrary, God cannot be trusted. And then the sort of the, the, the real gravamen of, of Satan's accusation here is that God is selfish. God knows that in the day you eat of that, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God's, knowing good and evil. And somehow this sounds reasonable and persuasive. One of the words that's used quite a little bit in this chapter, did you notice this, is the word flatter flatter or flattered. I think even uh, flattering is used. That, that, that there's this sort of flattery that takes place where the woman feels that, that Satan is um, uh, speaking to, to her own desire to attain to a higher level. And, uh, oh yeah, you, you, you want to be on the level I'm on. I mean, God doesn't want you to be on that level, but you... And so there's this kind of flattery that's going on and uh, quite fascinating, the use of that word. I think it occurs two or three times in the chapter. Okay, so, so back to my point here, that the basic argument that Ellen White is making here, and I know she goes into great detail, and amazing detail, by the way, on the actual sequence of the temptation and the fall and what takes place there in Genesis chapter 3. I get all that. But what's really at stake here is the nature of God's rules, the nature of God's requirements, what we might call God's law, right? That word law comes up quite a little bit here in the chapter. And uh, what, what Ellen White is doing here right at the outset and what Scripture does throughout is grounds God's law, God's requirements in his nature, in his character. They are not arbitrary. They are not capricious. Okay, now... Um, a couple more little details here. One thing that I have to point out, and uh, I've said this many times before, but it bears repeating, that Scripture expressly says that God said to Adam and Eve, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Well, that's the language of permission, and it's the language of abundance. Now, I want you in your mind's eye just to imagine how many other trees, apart from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, were in that garden. We know of at least one, the tree of life, but 
But God says, of every tree you may freely eat. And in your mind's eye, how many other fruit-bearing trees were there in that garden? Were there 500? Were there 1,000? Were there, were there 5,000? Whatever that number is, and we don't know the exact number. Oops, kicked you there. Sorry, Instagram. Whatever that, that number is, we don't know the exact number. Let's just say it was 1,000. Okay, well, just for, for the purpose of the illustration I'm trying to make here, let's say it was 1,000. So this is fascinating. 1,000 yeses to a single no, right? Because, because if Adam would have said, can I eat of this tree? God would have said, yeah, that one. And this one, yep. And this one, yes. And this one, yes. And that one too. And what about this one? Yes. And that one. So it would have been yes, 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 yes. And how about this one? And there would have been, and she makes this point. Listen, I'll read it here at the bottom of page 57. But one prohibition as to the use of all that was in the garden. One prohibition. So, so the lesson here is unmistakable. God governs more by permission than by prohibition. Say it with me. God governs more by permission, more by yes, than by prohibition, by no. Okay? God governs by yes, not no. Was there a no in the garden? Yes, there was a no in the garden. And you might say, oh, that's restrictive. That's unfair. In fact, that's actually what takes place there with the serpent. He casts the, the, the narrative as if there's this, you know, very little, you know, freedom and this, this tremendous restriction. Well, the opposite was true, right? The question suggests that there's a lot of restriction and only precious little freedom. Has God really said you can't eat of every tree? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can eat of a thousand of them or 5,000 or whatever the number was but only one we can't. So there was a vast horizon of freedom and the narrowest little niche of restriction. So, so what this alerts us to is that God governs by permission. He governs by yes, more than by no. Was there a no? Yeah, there was a no. But how many no's were there relative to yeses? That's the point. You know, as a percentage, it's a fraction of a percentage. Fascinating. Okay, I'm turning the page here. Um, she then describes the, the sort of nature of the serpent. This is the page. I'm on page 58. This is the page where she refers to him as the destroyer. I'm going to make that point again and again, that sin is inherently ruinous. In fact, let me just say it. Uh, do I want to say it now? Or do I, I'll say it now. Friends, sin is its own punishment, and obedience is its own reward. That's one of the major takeaways from this chapter. Sin is its own punishment. Sin does not, think about it this way. See if you can follow me on this. If sin, were, if, if sin were not inherently ruinous, if sin wasn't its own punishment, then God would have to come in artificially or contrivedly and punish sin. I'll use an illustration. Uh, let's say that I say to my son, hey, uh, Landon, when they were young, uh, Landon uh, or Jabel, pick up that pile of rocks and move that pile of rocks over there. And then let's say they do that. And then I say, now pick up that pile of rocks and move it back to where it originally was. Well, even a young child is going to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Dad. Just a moment ago, you had me move that very pile of rocks over here. And now you're asking me to move that pile of rocks back to where it originally was. Why? Now, if I say, hey, just do what I say, you know, that's capricious. That's arbitrary. But now let's just imagine that my son says, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that, Dad. And I say, what? You're not going to do that. And now here's your punishment. You're going to get a spanking. You're going to get in timeout. You're going to lose some, you know, privilege that you have. Okay, versus, now contrast that 
you know, scenario, that illustration with this. If I say, hey, hey, Landon Jabel, don't play in the middle of this road here because this is a, quite a busy intersection here. Don't play in the road. Now, if they say, well, dad, why not play in the middle of the road? That's a big open space. That's a great space to kick a ball or to, to you know, set up some goals and play a game of soccer. And I would say, no, 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 no. You don't want to play in the street because cars come by there. And if a car hits you, you will die. Do you hear the difference? Now, the, the, the command or the, the rule, the law to not play in the street, if they choose to do that, the punishment is not something that I have to come in and artificially inflict. The punishment is in the disobedience, getting hit by a car, or narrowly escaping with your life and being terrified. In other words, God didn't say to Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you eat of that tree, I will kill you. No. What he said was, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because the day you eat of that tree, you will die. Die as a consequence, or to use Ellen White's word, which she uses several times already. She's used it back in the opening chapter, and she uses it at least tw uh, twice in this chapter. The results, the results of sin, the results. She says that, for example, Satan, when he embarked upon his rebellion, was going to bring ruin upon himself. Ruin upon himself, exactly. Because God's laws are not arbitrary. They're not capricious. They're not just willy-nilly. They're not pick up that pile of rocks and put them over there and then bring them back. That's tyrannical and ridiculous. No, 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 no. What's on offer here is that when God says don't do something, he's not saying don't do it or else. I will come in artificially and contrivedly and do something to you. He's saying, hey, that's really bad for you. If you play in the street, you could get hit by a car. If you take a knife and stick it in an electrical outlet, you could be electrocuted. I don't say, hey, don't put a knife in the electrical outlet, Landon, or I will kill you. No, no, no. The danger is in the thing. Right? And Ellen White even quotes in this chapter, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. It's not that the wages of God is death. In fact, the opposite. The Bible says, speaking of God, in him was life. God is the life giver. What is God? He is the infinite framer and upholder of all. Sin is destructive. Sin is inherently ruinous. And so I'll say it again. Sin is its own punishment, and obedience is its own reward. Remember, holiness and happiness are not two things. They're one thing. And so uh, fascinating here. Now, she goes into great detail, sort of the psychological detail here between the dialogue between Eve and the serpent and you know, there's this promise, this kind of titillating, exhilarating promise of entering into a higher sphere. And, and listen, Satan still plays that one today. Oh, no, no. If you partake in this relationship, right, that's outside of the marital relationship that, that God has, you know, clearly described, oh, yeah, it'll be better. The sex will be better. The allure will be better. The sensual, it's all better. No, it's not. It's a lie. It's all, she actually says, she has this great line. Let me just read it to you here. She says, I'm on page, I'm turning the page here. Uh, page 60, listen to this. She says, um, I'm at the bottom of the paragraph that begins, Eve really believed. Okay, listen to this. We must set our hearts to know what is truth. All the lessons which God has caused to be placed on record in his word are for our warning and instruction. Again, a warning, not a threat. 
Not don't eat of that tree or I will kill you, that's a threat. But don't eat of that tree or you will die, that's a warning. You feel the difference? So she says, for our warning and instruction, they are given to save us from deception. Their neglect will result in ruin to ourselves. Ruin to ourselves. And she says the same thing back on page 57. Let me read it to you. She says, page 57, transgression brings upon transgression would bring upon them misery and ruin. Transgression brings misery and ruin. Sin brings misery and ruin. And the idea that if we enter into something that's forbidden by God, in fact, one of the things that I wrote in my journal here, it's a little cheesy, and I saw it on a church sign years ago. I was just driving through some town in rural Michigan, and I saw a little sign out on the front of a rural church that said, forbidden fruits make sticky jams. Forbidden fruits make, it actually said, forbidden fruits make for sticky jams. And that's exactly right. Because there is the titillating, exhilarating allure, the suggestion that, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. If you do what God forbids, you will, it'll be awesome. You'll have full liberty. You'll enter in. And she describes that. I'll just read it here, top of page 61. She imagined herself entering upon a higher state of existence. Uh, it says that she was in a state of strange, unnatural excitement. Well, yeah. That still happens to people when they, they take a certain kind of delight in doing, express, doing what God expressly forbids. And people are like, oh man, this was awesome. Doing that thing that's actually killing me, that's actually harming me, that's actually ruining me. Man, it was amazing. No, no, it actually wasn't amazing. And you've just deceived yourself, right? You've been deceived by the deceitfulness of sin, by the deceitfulness of the originator of sin, and there is no higher sphere, there is no expansive new, she uses the word broad or broader knowledge. No, you just got tricked. You just got tricked into taking poison, thinking that it was candy, right? You just got take, you just got tricked. The thing is not, it's a bait and switch. It's not what you were promised. And I thought that was great. Now, here's a really, really cool insight. So Eve is standing there at the tree, and you, you go down the, the sort of 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 litany of the rubric of sins, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, right? Because it says, uh, let's see if I've got it here. When she saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, that it was pleasant to the eyes, uh, lust of the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, pride of life, she partook. Okay, so Eve is standing there, she's looking at the tree, and she opts to believe the words of the serpent and not the word of God. Okay, so she opts in. And I was thinking about it. She broke many of the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments have not yet been given, of course. right? The, the Ten Commandments in terms of the codified law are not going to come until the time of Moses. That's still, you know, millennia in the future. right? That's a long way in the future. But I was reflecting on the Ten Commandments, and it occurred to me, because James says, for example, that he that breaks one has broken them all, but I just itemized the commands of the Ten Commands of the Ten Commandments that Eve had broken. And she broke at least number one, number three, number five, number eight, number nine, and number ten. Go read through the commands. I'll say them again. Number one, number three, number five, number eight, number nine, and number ten. Now, at the bottom of page 61, when 
Eve comes to Adam and has this fruit, she says immediately that Adam understood, that Adam knew. Eve was deceived, she was tricked, she was misled. Adam was not deceived, he was not tricked, he was not misled. He knew exactly what had happened, and he understood. She says it two times. Adam understood, he understood. And Paul makes this point expressly in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. He says that the woman was deceived, but the man not deceived. She was tricked, she was allured, she bought into the lie. When she came to Adam and said, oh man, this great thing has happened, Adam immediately understood, no, no. A great thing has not happened, but then this, this is phenomenal. She describes that he looks at her and, and her form and her beauty, and he can't imagine life without her, and so he chooses her. He chooses her over what he knows is the truth. He chooses her over God, over God's word, over God's will, over God's requirements. He chooses her. Friends, that is idolatry. I mean, she broke commands, what did I say? One, three, five, eight, nine, and 10. And then I itemized the commands that Adam broke and he broke at least one, two, five, and eight. Include two, notice two is there. The sin of idolatry. He sets Eve up as an idol that he just cannot do without. Rather than worshiping and obeying and serving the giver of the gift, he chooses to worship and deify the gift itself. And that's the definition of idolatry, to turn from the giver to the gift. To deify the gift rather than the giver is the definition of idolatry. And so go look those up and, and see if you agree with me. I'm suggesting here that Eve at the tree and in her fall broke at least commands number 1, 3, 5, 8, 9, and 10, and that Adam broke at least commands 1, 2, 5, and 8. Amazing. Um, turning the page here, uh, she then says that, you know, Adam had the same experience of imagining that he was, quote, uh, entering upon a higher state of existence, and I was so pleased that in that same paragraph, she then says, no, what actually happened was, and I'll just share with you the, cre the, the words here quickly, terror, guilt, sin, dread, nakedness, terror, hiding, and afraid. Okay, this is sin. It promises A and delivers B. Okay, it pro oh, I'm, I'm entering into this higher state of existence when I look at pornography, when I sleep with someone who's not my wife, when I partake of this substance that causes my mind to go a little crazy, when I say evil things about this person, when I, whatever, whatever the forbidden fruit is that makes for a sticky jam, we think, oh man, I've, ah, there's an exhilaration, right? There's this like titillation, feel great. But then the other side of that is that it's not great. It's a lie. It's a deception. And what you end up with is terror, sin, dread, guilt, nakedness, terror, hiding, and being afraid. And then this was the part I mentioned earlier that I just wrote in the, in the margin here. Great writing. I'm on page 63. The paragraph that begins, Adam could neither deny nor excuse his sin. Page 58 of the original pagination. Listen to these two sentences. I mean, this is great writing. Now, this is just fantastic writing, and, and Ellen White is such a forceful communicator. God gave her a gift, and she used that gift to the full uh, capacity that she was able. Listen to this. Uh, begins uh, right in the middle of the paragraph. He who, now just listen to this. Listen to the, to the accuracy, the beauty with which she communicates this tragedy of Adam blaming Eve 
in the presence of God, when God comes down and says, hey, what happened? The woman that you gave to be with me. And Ellen White captures this perfectly. Listen to this. He who, from love to Eve, had deliberately chosen to forfeit the approval of God, his home in paradise, and an eternal life of joy, could now, after his fall, endeavor to make his companion and even the creator himself responsible for the transgression. So terrible is the power of sin. That is fantastically lucid and succinct and clear writing. That's just great writing. Amazing. And one of the things when Jen comes this weekend, and I can't wait, there's a large section here where she talks about the transformation of their relationship. And she talks about submission, that the, the egalitarianism that they had possessed before sin, the unity and harmony that they had possessed before sin could only be maintained by the submission of one to the other. And people have made a lot of mistakes, theological mistakes and marital mistakes, on what's taking place here in the latter half of Genesis 3. And one of the things that Jen and I are going to talk about, Dr. Jennifer Jill Schwarzer, we're going to do a supplemental session on this. And so I'm, I'm just going to sort of pass over that for now. We will come back to that. But, but what does Ellen White mean when she writes in, in this chapter about true womanly dignity and womanly nobility of character? What is she writing about when she writes about restless modern eaves? This is one of the paragraphs, for example, where she uses the word flattered. She was flattered with the hope of entering a higher sphere. So we're going to get into that. I'm not going to go on a deep dive on gender and marriage and submission and all that right now. We're going to talk about that when Jen gets here because there's a lot to, to get into. Um, I'm going to turn the page again here. Then we get into this uh, really great section, top of page 67, where Ellen White three times on this page uses the word law. Law, law, law. And my thesis here is that the whole chapter is really about God's law. It's about God's requirements, God's rules, and how those are not arbitrary and they're not restrictive. They actually engender freedom and joy and happiness and holiness because they're grounded, they're moored and rooted, again, in God's covenantal, social character and nature of love. So obedience is freedom. Obedience is not legalism. Uh, what, what an absurd thing to say. In fact, I, I tweeted something just today. Let me just see if I can quickly find this. I didn't tweet it. Actually, uh, Lightbearers tweeted it. But then I was like, ooh, it's really funny. When these tweets come up, I'm like, I'll, I'll read it, you know, when they come up on the Lightbearers uh, Twitter account or the Arise Twitter account, and I'll read it and I'll say, oh, I agree with that. And then I'll see it was something I said. <laughs> Okay, let me see if I can quickly find this. Um, just go here, Twitter. And let's see, I think I retweeted it. Okay, here, here it is. You ready for this? A rule, a rule benefits you in many and wonderful ways. No, no, if, if, I, okay, let me start over, let me start over. If a rule benefits you in many and wonderful ways, then that rule is really a freedom a freedom from the consequence of its violation. Exactly. I agree with this. <laughs> I agree with what I said. I'm going to say it again. If a rule benefits you in many and wonderful ways, let's take, for example, the rule that's here. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There were 5,000 yeses or 1,000 yeses and a single no. And that rule was not restrictive. That rule was a freedom. In fact, 
Let me say this really clearly. That rule didn't only bring about a freedom. The rule itself was a freedom. It kept them from what? All those things that I just read. Shame, sin, guilt, ruin, being afraid, hiding, terror. So I'll read it again. If a rule benefits you in many and wonderful ways, then that rule is really a freedom, a freedom from the consequences of its violation. To me, that is the superstructure of this whole chapter. And on page 67, 61 in the original, she gets into this, right? That, and she even says, I thought this was a great point, that the requirement to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was such a small reasonable, even dare I say, minuscule requirement. I mean, it was just so, it was so eminently reasonable. I mean, if, if he said yes to 5,000 trees or 1,000 trees or whatever the number of fruit-bearing trees there were in the garden and only no to one, then no one can say this is onerous. No one can say this is austere or difficult or restrictive. In fact, this, this is what she says, top of page 67, 50, uh, 61 in the original pagination. He appointed Adam no severe test, and the very lightness of the prohibition made the sin exceedingly great. Bam. The lightness of the prohibition made the sin exceedingly great. And she then closes the chapter, and I thought it was great, with a reminder that of the new heaven and the new earth, the promise in Revelation 21 and 22 and Isaiah 66, that, that there will be access again to the tree of life in the garden, the garden of Eden, the garden of pleasure, the garden of happiness, the garden of holiness. And that tree of life, in fact, man, should I say this? I'm just going to say this very quickly. And if you get it, great. And if you don't, I'm not going to dwell on it. Both the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life anticipate the cross. The cross is the tree of life. It is the tree where Jesus hung to die and where we receive life because of the penalty that he received into himself. He has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. The tree of life is the cross. But you know what else is the cross? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because what do we see on the cross? We see goodness fully manifested. And we see evil fully manifested. It is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is an important distinction to be made here. The tree was not the tree of good and evil. That's not what was in Genesis chapter 3. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what tree in the whole of human history reveals more to us about the nature of good and the nature of evil, the nature of supreme, self-sacrificial, loving goodness, and the nature of demonic, torturous, self-centered, tyrannical evil than the cross. Okay, if you got it, you got it. And uh, let's see, did I get everything here I wanted to say? I'm just going to go down my list here, make sure I ticked all the boxes. Got that. Got that. Oh, I put up an incredible quotation from Blaise Pascal on both Facebook and on Instagram. I didn't put it up on Twitter because it was too long. If you haven't yet read that, go read it and read it carefully and then read it again and then read it again because I've got it actually right here. Pascal makes this incredible point. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just listen to this last line. 
He says the knot, K-N-O-T, the knot, like you tie a knot. The knot of our condition, our fallen condition, takes its twists and turns in this abyss so that man is more inconceivable without this mystery than the mystery is inconceivable to man. Now, that's a little tricky to get your head around, but let me just tell you what Pascal is saying here. He's basically saying this. Without an understanding of Genesis 3, without an understanding of the fall of humankind, without an understanding of the transformation of our nature from innocence and selflessness to selfishness, we can't understand ourselves. He, he says, look, the mystery is hard to understand. You want to know what's harder to understand? Try to understand yourself without this mystery. You can't. This is what Paul is wrestling with in Romans 7 when he's like, why am I doing the stuff I hate and not doing the things I wish I was doing? Because your nature is fallen. What took place there in the garden was not just an isolated incident, you know, of, you know, an historical point of interest. No. What took place in the garden radically affected the whole of humanity, including everybody right now on OT with DA, including the presenter of o the DA of OT with DA. So yes, it is mysterious to think back through the millennia, back to that scene in the garden where, where humankind fell and believed the deceiver and that their nature was transformed and then all of their descendants' nature was transformed. Pascal says, yeah, that's, that's hard to conceive of. He says, you want to know what's harder to conceive of? Try to conceive of yourself without that mystery. You can't. Right? And I love, you know, secularists, and I'm going to go, I'm probably going to say too much here. But people that are not religious or secularists or, you know, that are dismissive of religion, dismissive of the Bible, dismissive of Christianity. Yeah, yeah, well, how do you explain the whole of human history? The whole of human history is a long, uninterrupted trail of bloodshed, tyranny, oppression, injustice, unkindness. And they want to say, well, the, it's the government's fault. It's not the government's fault. It's us. It's human beings. We're flawed. We're broken. Something is wrong with us. There is a fly in the ointment. There's a wrinkle in the shirt. We are fundamentally broken. We need a savior. Sin is real, and it's not just something that's external to us, something that we do with our hands. Sin and selfishness and rebellion is a part of the fiber and fabric of our being. And when we begin to understand that, Pascal says, now you're beginning to understand yourself. Just a brief word on this. I mentioned that Ty Gibson and I just finished a 10-part series on the, on the Sermon on the Mount. How does the Sermon on the Mount open? By the way, you should check out that series, Storyline YouTube, uh, Storyline YouTube channel, YouTube channel, or the Storyline app, the brand new series. I think it starts this weekend, or maybe it's next. It either starts this Sabbath or the following Sabbath. It's called Kingdom Manifesto, and it was 10 parts, and it went amazingly well, and I want you to watch it. But... How does Jesus start the Sermon on the Mount? How does he start it? With the Beatitudes. How does he start the Beatitudes? Like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me translate that for you. What does it mean by poor in spirit? Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty. Blessed are those who know that they're broken. They have nothing to bring. They're, they're bankrupt. They're empty. They got nothing. That's humanity. It's every single one of us. And again, this is Pascal's point. Yeah, it's a little tricky to understand how Adam's fall implicated 
and affected, you know, in its wake, all of humanity. He says, yeah, that's hard to understand. You know what's harder to understand? Try to understand yourself without an awareness of what Scripture says is that fall. Great point. So go check that out. All right, um, let's do the rubric. Let's do the rubric. By the way, uh, just one final thing before I do the rubric here. Richard Davidson, who is an Old Testament theologian and a scholar, has said correctly, and I totally agree with this, that all of the truth of Scripture is contained embryonically. This is my paraphrase of what he says. That all of the truth of Scripture is contained embryonically in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's all in there. Everything in embryonic or nucleic form is found in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And everything after that, from Genesis 4 all the way to Revelation 22, the whole rest of the Bible is commentary. All the important stuff happens. Everything that's going to happen, all of humanity, the, the, and we'll see this uh, in our next session tomorrow, the plan of redemption, the promise of a Savior, the fallenness of mankind, the law, the goodness of God, you know, it's all in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's all there. And everything after that is basically commentary on those great central themes. Why are we still paying attention to this book thousands of years after it was written? Why? Because we are some cult? Because we're some religious fanatic? No, the reason that people are paying attention to this book is it's true. And it's so obviously true. It's so inescapably true. The stuff that's being said, and we're going to see this over and over and over again in our study through Patriarchs of Prophets, the stuff that's being said in Scripture is so thoroughly modern and so thoroughly accurate that only the fool would say in his heart, there is no God, to quote Psalm 14, verse 1. Okay, here we go. Here's the rubric very quickly. Number one, what's the point of this chapter? Well, I think you probably got what my point was. To tell the story of the great controversy's transition from heaven to earth against the backdrop of an introduction to the nature of law, the nature of sin, and the nature of the fall. Okay? And I'm going to add on top of that to know that... No, no, that's it. The nature of sin, the nature of law, and the nature of the fall. Okay? So talking about the transition. Satan comes here, and then now we're off to the races. Right? We are well and truly in the stream of the Old Testament narrative. All of these first three chapters are really table-setting chapters, right? Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and Patriarchs and Prophets 1, 2, and 3, they set the table, they give us lenses through which we can see the rest of what we're going to be studying and reading. The rest of it, okay? We see it through creation, bam. We see it through uh, the fall, bam. We see it through the nature of God's uh, rules, and the non-arbitrariness of his character and government. Okay, enough about that. Number two, the person. What do we learn about the person here? Well, that God is not arbitrary. That the law of love is a transcript of his character, and also only a covenantal and social God could be love in his nature, and that this loving God, this God who is more than loving, but love himself, that he governs by yes more than by no and by permission more than by prohibition. That's, that's a lot to learn about God, and it's all in this chapter. And it's amazing. And it's really good news. See, you thought, maybe you thought you had to get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the epistles of Paul to start getting good news. Oh, no. Oh, no. There is plenty of good news 
already on full display. And we're only three chapters in. Okay, how do we pray this chapter? Here's what I wrote. Father, help me to remember that sin is its own punishment and that it is inherently ruinous and that you are the greatest of all possible rewards. Earlier I said, sin is its own punishment and obedience is its own reward. And I stand by that. But you know what's even cooler? What's even more amazing? Sin is its own punishment and God is the greatest of all rewards. When God gives us the gift of life, he gives us the gift of himself. When he gives us the gift of wisdom, he gives us the gift of himself. When he gives us the gift of love, he gives us the gift of himself. Sin is its own punishment and God is the greatest of all possible rewards. So Father, help me to remember that. Uh, number four, the practice. How do we practice this chapter? Here's what I wrote. Stay away from Satan's access points. Ooh, that's a practical application. Talk to me, talk to me, right? Because, because remember, Satan couldn't harass and harangue Adam and Eve all around the garden. There was just a single point of access and Satan had access to them only to the degree that they put themselves in his, in his influence, in his sphere, when they got close to him, he had power. If they stay away from him, he has no power. And so my practical application here is, Lord, teach me how to stay away from Satan's access points and not to deceive myself that sin will take me to some higher, better, nobler state. It's all a lie. It's, untru it's, it's, it's untruthful. It's a deception. No, no. Obedience is freedom. Sin is slavery. Father in heaven, help me to keep that clear in my mind. I mean, not all obedience is freedom, by the way. If you're obeying a tyrant, well, that's not freedom. If you're, if you're obeying someone that hates you or that's trying to hurt you, well, that's not freedom. But obeying this God, this God that's described in Scripture as being love in his very nature, that's freedom. That's freedom. Okay, finally, the promise. I like where Ellen White ends this chapter, the promise of a new heaven and a new earth, the restoration of Eden and the restoration of access to the tree of life. Okay, quickly, I want to know on Instagram Live, what did you select as your word? Okay, what was the word that for you that just encapsulated this chapter? And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what mine is. In fact, I'll just let you know right here. Okay, let me, let me just see. I, already they're coming up. Um, promise, wondered, freedom, subjection, disharmony, oh, warning, Hannah, very good. Disbelief, says Jen. Law, consequences, yep, 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 yep. Obedience, Jim says, repent. Johnny says, plan. Mel says, deceit, law. Freedom, law, justice, good word, great word. She uses the word equity. The word is justice. Freedom, ruin, choices, says Joseph, obedience, consequences. Mikey, great to see you, Mikey. Brother, I love you, says freedom. Mahal kata, choice, separation, accountability, deceived. Oh, nakedness, good for you, Katerski. I like that. Salvation. Choice, freedom, ooh, loss. Mm. Forbidden, says Austin. She says it a lot. Okay, I'll have to go back and, back and look at that. Uh, giver, vulnerable, 
tricked. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong about that. Violation, uh, truth, unbelief, consequence, mercy. Okay, these are all great words. Excellent, excellent. Indulgence. Okay, so so I don't, okay, the word I'm almost, I think I'm going to use, and I didn't yet write it in, is the word law. Because the nature of sin, the nature of law, the nature of the fall is all on offer here. I didn't write it in because I wanted to kind of settle on it a little bit. I read this chapter early this morning, and then I read it again this afternoon, and I was like, I think my word is law, and I thought, I'm going to wait to see if somebody else gives me something that just, I go, yes, that's the one. And um, for now, I'm, I'm going to stay with law. The reason, I'll be honest with you, the reason I'm a little reluctant to say law is that I know we're going to have whole chapters on the law at Sinai. And so can I use law so soon, so quick, so early? Because one of the things I try and do, and maybe it's artificial and contrived, but I try to not use the same word twice. And I was able to do that with the desire of ages, and I'm hoping to be able to do that here, but I, th I think I'm going to surrender and say, my word here is law, and then in parenthesis, I'm going to put of love. So law, parenthesis, of love, because I, I can't violate my rule that it's a single word. So don't accuse me of that. It's not three words. The parentheses words don't count. It's just law of love. Okay, that's our session for today. God bless you all. We will be back tomorrow, uh, same time. We'll just do six o'clock. This works extremely well for me. I took a poll on Instagram and it was basically 50-50. And so I thought it might be overwhelmingly toward doing it in the morning. And since it's 50-50 um, and it makes my life much easier to do it in the evening, afternoon, my evening, afternoon, Apologies to all of those of you who would prefer it in the mornings. We did most DAs with DA in the morning, and I'm not saying we'll never do it in the morning. My schedule might be such that at some point I'll have to alert you, but for now, until further notice, uh, we're gonna be doing it at this time, which is six o'clock mountain time. I'll see you tomorrow. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, you are good. And as someone said here in the chat just a moment ago, you are the giver. Father, that really was the, the great deception there. The essence of the deception is that God was trying to keep something back, trying to withhold something that would have been in Adam and Eve's best interest to have. So Father, we want to thank you for all that you have given to us. You've given to us life, and hopefully in the cases of most of us, health. You've given us brains to think and technology to interact. And Father, above all, the greatest, the capital G gift is that you have given us Jesus, your Son, our Savior, the one who, who hung on the tree of life and the one who hung on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Father, you've given us Jesus. Jesus came willingly, voluntarily, enthusiastically to save those that were made in his image. And so, Father, we receive that. Help us to remember that all of your laws, all of your rules, all of the things that you require of us are for our own good. And the things that look titillating and interesting and enticing are in fact delusions. They are deceptions. And they will, if we cling to them and hold to them and pursue them, they will inevitably and ultimately and eventually bring about ruin and death. Father, tonight we choose life. Tonight we choose Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.